0: Throughout the years, there have been certain uh, leaders in history who have been able to communicate a vision so compellingly, so passionately, that people stepped out of the bleachers and they stepped onto the playing field and they said, sign me up, because the thought of non-involvement was unthinkable. I mean, you can, you can just think of various leaders like that. Um, the founding fathers of this nation, for example, painted a vision of, of, uh, of, of a nation that was free from taxation without representation and they cried give me liberty or give me death and farmers laid down their tools and they picked up their weapons and tens of thousands of people said sign me up and many fought to the death because they believed so passionately about that vision. Um, Who could forget about the vision painted by Martin Luther King Jr. on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that day? of a nation that judges one another based upon the the content of the character rather than the color of their skin. Or when you think of, of visions and vision casters, you have to... Think of the likes of of Nelson Mandela and uh, even Gandhi and and Billy Graham and the list would include both positive and negative vision casting leaders as well. But I believe that the all-time greatest vision, the all-time most important vision casted by the all-time greatest leader in history has been Jesus Christ when he painted the picture of a church. When he painted the picture in his ministry of what it would be like in this brutal, dog-eat-dog, selfishly ambitious, climbing one, climbing over one another, tearing one another down culture. When he painted a picture of what it would be like if a group of people came together under the submission of the king of kings Jesus Christ with the holy spirit of Jesus living in their heart loving god loving one another loving a lost and broken world in fact in many of Christ's sermons he would begin them by talking about the kingdom of heaven is like this the kingdom of heaven is like that and he would discuss how the kingdom of heaven would be so counterintuitive to this world it would be so counter and cultural He would say, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. Or in my kingdom, the children will come unto me. In my kingdom, the least will be the greatest. In my kingdom, whoever can achieve humility will be the greatest. In my kingdom, and people would begin to swarm to hear about this otherly worldly kingdom about what it would be like in this brutal world if a group of people came together and dared to trust Jesus Christ enough to surrender their lives through him and love no matter the cost to themselves. And the crowds began to swell. And the religious leaders began to get very nervous. And they uh, began telling lies and having secret talks and bribes were made and lies were told and there was manipulation and there were politics and and they arrested Jesus and they brutally beat him and they crucified him and the vision was dead. It seemed to gain some traction, but it was dead. When Jesus breathed his last, last breath, or so it seemed that it was dead. Because three days later, Jesus conquered death. He rose from the grave, and he was surrounded by his original followers. And he said, the vision is more alive than you can imagine. In fact, the vision is about to be fully alive through you when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. He ascended into heaven. He sent the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit filled his followers' heart, and the vision was born into reality. And it was more powerful, it was more beautiful, it was more God-honoring, it was more others-oriented, it was more Christ-like, it was more selfless, it was more humble, it was more burdened for the lost and broken than they could have ever imagined. And do you want to know what they called it? They called it the church. And we read about this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It's the inception of the church. It's the very first church. It's what we want to be like Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, and it reads This is the very first church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. It's not that they all came from the same neighborhood. Jews and Gentiles are coming together. That was one of the great miracles of the other church. The, the rich and the poor, the up and out, the down and out. They, they didn't have all things in common in this world, but they had all things in common and that they were bound by the Holy Spirit. And that was such a powerful bond that all things that were uncommon fell by the wayside. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who's, as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. This was the church. And it was not organized, it was not well structured. They didn't have a traditional pastoral staff where they had a head over this department, a head over that department, a head over that department, and a head over that department. In fact, structure didn't start to evolve until about four, you know, a few chapters later. But it was the most dynamic, the most powerful, the most uh, counter-cultural, the most count, the most cultural transformational church in history. They did one thing well. They did one thing well. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and let Jesus love one another through them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they worshipped Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they longed for Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were broken for a lost and dying world. They loved well. Again, there wasn't a great deal of structure. There wasn't a great deal of of strategy. There wasn't no structure. There was no strategy. But they loved well. They loved Jesus well as they worshipped him. They loved one another well as they gave to each other as they had need. They loved a lost and dying world well as they shared how their hearts had been changed and transformed and saved and cleansed and renewed and the Lord will do the same for them. They had no structure. They had no systems. They had no strategy, but they loved well. And how often do we try to bypass the love and take a shortcut and go straight to the structures and the systems and the strategies because we think that it'll help us be big. We think that it'll help us grow. We think that it'll help us get to Acts chapter 2 verse 47 and the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. Most churches today, I am sad to say, But you know it's true. If you've visited around, most churches today could care less about the early stuff, the other other verses, and loving well, just so long as they can go straight to the structure and system stuff so that they can grow big. And that absolutely breaks the heart of God. You can look in the book of Revelation, and Jesus is addressing seven churches. And to one church, the church I believe at Sardis, he says... You have the appearance that you are alive and that you are well. In fact, if they were in 2016, they would be the church that was putting on the church growth conference. They would. He said, you have the appearance that you are alive and well, but you are dead. You are dead. You're dead. It's because they bypassed the love and they went straight to the Structure, systems, you know, growth, whatever it is. The CEO stuff, the the big model stuff. But the church that was absolutely being crushed, it was the church in Smyrna. It was the town, Smyrna. Smyrna was um, undergoing incredible persecution. In fact, interestingly, when Smyrna, when, uh, Smyrna uh, grows grows something called uh, ur and when it's crushed it's it's a fragrance it's it's what they use to to embalm um you know dead folks and it's they were being crushed they were being killed they were being crucified for that for their faith they if they put a church growth conference on no nobody would have attended and they were being crushed and yet their being crushed created an aroma to Jesus Christ that was pleasing to him because they got the one thing down that mattered and that was love. They were loving Christ well. They were loving one another well. They were loving their lost and broken community well. They were loving. It's really, it's really simple. The Christian walk can be, can be summarized in this one word. It's love. And so let's all ask ourselves, are we loving well? We can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that that without that, we are a clanging cymbal. We're sheer noise if we don't love well. Nothing else matters, but do we love well? We can even offer our bodies to the flames, but if the motive was not love, it was purely in vain. We have to love well. In 1 Corinthians 13, and talking about loving well, he draws the uh, analogy of a clanging cymbal. Have you ever seen a symphony warming up? Have you ever heard a symphony warming up? It's like everybody's playing their own individual piece, right? And what what is the result? It is absolute noise. It's clanging cymbals. It's noise. But then the maestro waves his wand and everybody submits and follows. And then it becomes beautiful music so the key to loving well is that we submit and we surrender to our maestro who's Jesus Christ and we follow him all eyes are on Christ that's how we love well all eyes are on Christ so Acts chapter 2 verse 42 through 47 it's our blueprint it's what we want to be it's who we want to be when we grow up as a church and they loved well and they loved well because they were constantly, we've sort of just broken this down into, into, into a couple of statements that I, I pray that you, you, you remember throughout the week to ask yourselves and to, 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 to use the scripture as a plumb line to your life and say, is your life lining up? <clears throat> Are you reaching up? And that's loving Christ well through worship. Are you reaching up? Are you reaching in? And that's loving one another in the body of Christ. Through giving and receiving and knowing what's going on in each other's lives and being a blessing. Are you reaching up? Are you reaching in? And then are you reaching out? Are you reaching out to people who don't know Christ? So you guys say, reach up, reach in, reach out. All right. Say it one more time with authority. Reach up, reach in, reach out. All right. <clears throat> so you guys, I want you all to hang on to that this week and, and ask yourselves, Lord, am I, or ask the Lord, Lord, am I, am I reaching up? To your pleasure? Am I reaching in to your pleasure? Am I reaching out to your pleasure? Am I fueled by love? And when our eyes are on Jesus and we reach up and we reach in and we reach out, our love is characterized by something called passion. And are you passionate about reaching up? Are you passionate about reaching in? Are you passionate about reaching out? It might be that, that, that you don't love well because, because you've, you, you've tried to bypass, you know, loving and go straight to the, to, 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 to the fruitfulness. You know, that's just a business CEO model. It's just like the world. What's the difference? Let's just, let's just become a business. Let's just become a nonprofit. Let's forget about Jesus. Or it might be that you're not loving well because you just don't care. <laughs> and your heart is just passive. It's it's hot or cold, but we can't be lukewarm. And so the way that we love Christ well, the way that we love one another well, and the way that we love a lost and dying world well with passion is that we keep our eyes on the maestro, Jesus Christ. So as we reach up, reach in, and reach out, let's look at what it is to keep our eyes on the maestro and ask yourself, not only are you loving well, but are you loving passionately? Because if we get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, you will love Christ well. You will love the church well. You will love a lost and dying world well. And it will be with a passion. And if you're passionate about the end but not the means because you're trying to bypass love, it's going to be counterproductive. And if you're not passionate at all, since something is, is not well in your spirit. And so let's get our eyes on Christ and love Christ well, love the church well, love a lost and dying world well. So let's first talk about reaching up to the one who reached down to us, loving the one who first loved us. In reaching up, I'd like to draw your attention to a few verses that that Reggie's going to put up on the screen. The the first one, um, I believe is Titus, it's coming up, Titus chapter 2, verse 14, there it is, watch this. This is an amazing verse. In fact, the verse before uh, 14, you can just leave that up, Reggie, but the verse before 14 and 13 talks about as an aside that we are waiting for the appearance of our glorious God, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. Our God is Jesus Christ. Jesus is not simply a good man. He's not simply a teacher. He is God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Literally from Genesis through Revelation, we read about this three-in-one triune God. Jesus is God and he gave himself for us. God is came to earth and shed his blood for us. God, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us unto himself, a peculiar people, watch this, zealous for good works. Yes, we are to be zealous, and we are to be passionate because our eyes are on the one who gave himself for us. In fact, in your Bible, you ought to circle that word for. Jesus Christ, Our glorious God gave himself for us. And you can circle that word for. If you go back to the original Greek, the word for would be hooper. And hooper means on behalf of, is one translation. He who gave himself on behalf of us. But in more specific translations, in the appropriate context, and this is one of those cases, is that he gave himself hooper, or he gave himself instead of us. And there is a wealth of theology, and there is a wealth of passion. And that one Greek word, "hooper" that we get this small preposition for from. Jesus Christ, our glorious God, gave himself instead of us. And that provides a depth of the gospel that will bring you to your knees in humility and fill your heart with love for Christ. He gave himself instead of us. You know that Jesus Christ died for you. But he also, even deeper, he died instead of you. That he might redeem us from all iniquity. So let's put a picture to that. Uh, Hooper that we get this preposition for from. So imagine that you're driving through a school zone and you're texting. You're not paying attention. And you zoom through a 20 mile an hour school zone texting. And you zoom through it and you're going about 80. 80. So you see the red lights behind you, and you get pulled over, and you get a ticket. And so the time comes around, and you go to court. And so as you're going to court, you think to yourself, I've got it made. Because it just so happens, you say to yourself that my dad is the judge. And my dad loves me, my dad is always so generous to me, and he cares about me, so I've got it made. And so you go to stand before your dad but as you go to stand before your dad you see your dad up there and he looks very serious as if this is a serious matter because it is a very serious matter and then you start to think to yourself "Uh uh-oh see my dad is a very good judge he loves me i have no doubt about that and he's gracious but he's a very good judge and and if people are guilty then he sentences them if they're not guilty well he lets them go he is very just and then so then you start thinking "Uh uh-oh I know my dad loves me so much, but I also know that he's very just. And so as you're walking up, you start asking yourself, I wonder which is going to win out, my dad's love or my dad's justice? So then you stand before the judge, who is your dad? And he says, are you guilty? And how do you plead? And you say guilty. And he says, okay, well, the fine is is, is $1,000 or a month in jail. What will it be? And you don't have $1,000, and you don't have time for a month in jail. So I guess you're just going to go to jail. But then your dad steps up, and he walks in front of the bench, and he pulls out a checkbook, and he writes $1,000, and he puts it on the bench, and he says, price paid in full. What is that? He paid for you, Hooper, on your behalf, but not only that, he paid instead of you. And in the same way, we read, for the wages, the consequences, the payment of sin is death. But God loves us. He doesn't want us to die, especially to be separated from him for eternity. He loves us, but he's also just. And how could a God who is disinterested in justice possibly be trusted? Could you imagine? Could you imagine if a family member was, was, brutally, was brutally tormented and tortured and beaten and they found the people who did it and the, just, the judges, uh, he just bypassed justice and his mercy went over and he said, oh, come on, guys, you know, try to do better. I'm going to let you go. You would be... Outrage! In fact, we saw, we've seen this in the news recently. A young guy raped a girl and, I mean, just maybe a little bit of probation or something like that. And, I mean, the judge has totally bypassed justice. And it is absolutely outraging to the family members who were victimized. How could a judge who is disinterested in justice possibly be trusted? And yet God loves us for the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. God loves us. And yet he's just. So which wins out, his love or his justice? Remember, remember that word in for, it's hooper. His, his, he paid on our behalf with his blood. He redeemed us with his blood. And he paid instead of us. So that Jesus Christ didn't just come to earth and pull out his checkbook and write out a $500 check. He was brutally beaten. He was tortured. The beard was ripped out of his face. Uh, spikes were driven through his hands and feet. We read in Psalm 22, a messianic prophecy about Jesus, that his bones were exposed. Did you know that? He was beaten so severely that his bones were exposed. Have you ever had an injury so severely, so severe or known somebody who was injured so severe? That their bones, whether it's their elbow or their their shin or maybe their, their skull, was exposed. I mean, that's a brutal injury, isn't it? Jesus was beaten so severely, his bones were exposed. We also read in Isaiah 53, a messianic prophecy about Jesus, that he was beaten so severely that he didn't even look like a human being. And that was even before the spikes. And reality is, we didn't simply deserve that. We deserved so much more than that to pay for our sins by being separated from God. Where are we separated from God? Jesus references that place where he is not throughout eternity where our souls live in hell. You see, everybody lives forever. Not just the saved. Everybody. The question is, where? Where? You think, well, I think it's just metaphorical. When Jesus is talking about the flames and where the worm dying not and the the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, well, okay, granted. If it is simply metaphorical rather than literal, metaphorical for what? To use that sort of terminology because words fell us? Metaphorical for what? And so Jesus, he ransomed us with his own blood to pay For our sins. Jesus loves us so much, he died for us. Jesus loves us so much, he died instead of us. Thank you, Reggie. Now let's go to the next verse. 1 Peter 3.18. Here it is again. For Christ also hath suffered for sins. The just, and here's this preposition again, for, from Hooper. The just on behalf of the unjust. Or another way to read it. The just instead of the unjust. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And this theme of substitution, uh, uh, on behalf of, or instead of, begins all the way back in the book of Eden... In the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were fellowshipping with God in the cool of the day, and then they sinned, and they were hiding, and one of the saddest words in all of Scripture was God said, Adam, where art thou? It was rhetorical. He knew where he was, but he was hiding. The fellowship with God was broken. But then right there in the book of Genesis, we see that God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame with animal skins. There you have it, right there in the book of Genesis. The first glimpse of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we oftentimes gloss right over that. God covered Adam and Eve, who, were, who realized they had no clothes and they were ashamed. He covered their shame with animal skin. That means that an innocent animal had to die in order to cover their failure and shame. An innocent animal had to die to cover their their shame. That's the first example we have of for or hooper or instead of. And that was the first picture we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you read on and we read about the patriarch Abraham who finally had that blessed son Isaac and and then God told Abraham take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love up on the mountain and that mountain that Abraham took his son Isaac upon was Mount Moriah which is Calvary, the same hill that Christ was crucified on. And he said, take him up there and sacrifice him. And by then, Isaac was probably in his late teens, early 20s. Abraham, by then, is, you know, 120 years old. And Isaac says, dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at his son and says, son, you're it. Isaac could have very easily overpowered his dad and ran from his dad, but that was a picture of the submission of Jesus Christ who willingly gave himself for us. And he laid down there, down on that altar without anything to tie him up, and he simply laid there. And Abraham raised the knife up, and he was about to plunge it through his son's chest when the angel of the Lord, which is an Old Testament appearance of Christ, said, Abraham, stop. And so Abraham didn't plunge the knife out of his son, and Isaac got up and they looked over and the Lord provided a ram, which was another picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that God provided. So there we, you and I, represents Isaac, and Abraham represents God the Father, and the wages of our sin is death, but rather than us paying for the sin, then we were removed from the altar and Jesus paid for our sins ...for us on our behalf or instead of us as a lamb was provided and Jesus was the ram who was provided on behalf of us. Fast forward time and you see the people of God and they're in Israel and it's the 10th plague before they, they leave Egypt... And Moses was to spread the the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. All the Hebrews were to spread the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. As the spirit of death went through the land, the firstborn male from every dog to every livestock to every human being was going to be killed. Unless they had the blood of the lamb spread over the doorpost and the spirit of death would pass over that home. Thus, that's where we get the word pass over. Pass over. So can you imagine a dad and his son going into the backyard and and the dad picks up a lamb spotless without blemish and the son says, dad, what are we going to do with this lamb? And the dad says, we're going to slay it, son. And the son looks up at his dad like he doesn't understand. And then the dad puts the son on a rock and he takes his knife and he puts the knife up to the lamb's throat. And he's about to slice the lamb's throat as it's going to convulse in pain as the blood spills out of it. But before he does, the son says, dad, dad, stop. What are you doing? And the dad looks at his son and he said, son, it's this lamb or it's you. And they slaughter the lamb. And that's a picture of Jesus Christ who we know as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died for us. He died on our behalf. He died instead of us. And you read in Leviticus chapter 16 and other places in Scripture... On the Day of Atonement, it happened annually. It had to happen annually just one time because these substitutes were only pictures of Jesus. They weren't actual sacrifices that could remove sin. But on the Day of Atonement, each year all the people would gather around and there would be two goats in the middle of all of them and the high priest in all of his garb would cast lots and whichever lot the goat landed upon was the scapegoat the scapegoat. Have you ever heard that word before? The scapegoat. It means the innocent takes the blame and takes the responsibility so the guilty can go free. It was the scapegoat that word finds its origin in this ancient Hebrew ceremony called the Day of Atonement that we can read about in Leviticus 16. And so whichever lot... Whichever goat the lot was landed upon was the scapegoat. And the other goat, they took that goat and the high priest slaughtered it. And he took its blood and he walked into the tabernacle, the holy place, the holy of holies. It was through a veil. And by the way, when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was ripped in two. Which means we don't need animals anymore because they were only pictures of Jesus who was the real sacrifice. And then He dipped His hands in the blood and He sprinkled it on the mercy seat seven times, which rested atop of the Ark of the Covenants. And that was a picture of paying for our sins. The Lamb was the scapegoat. The, the, the the, The Lamb was died for us instead of the people. And then the high priest went outside and with his hands he, he laid his hands on the scapegoat and he blessed the scapegoat and, and then all the sins symbolically transferred onto the scapegoat and the priest removed his hands and there was a circle around the lamb, the scapegoat's head. And then the scapegoat was led outside of the camp, far off into the wilderness, to wander a lonely life and die by itself. The first goat removed the penalty of the people's sins symbolically. They sighed in relief. I won't have to die. The second goat removed the guilt of the people's sins far from them. They could now have a clean conscience and hope and pray and have joy because the scapegoat removed their guilt Far from them. And when Jesus was being beaten, and when they put the crown of thorns on his head, and he was led outside of Jerusalem, he was carrying our sins away from us so that we wouldn't have to carry the guilt of our sins. And no doubt he looked like that scapegoat who, for centuries past, every single year was led out of the camp to remove the people's guilt far from them up onto that mountain, Mount Moriah, that we now know as Mount Calvary. And Jesus paid for our sins and said, it is finished, te-te-stalah, price paid in full, it's accomplished, no more payment is necessary, I've paid for your sins and i remove your guilt from you. Jesus died because he loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died instead of you. He died instead of you. And that should bring us all to our knees in humility, with reverence, with awe as we worship the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the earth. And we read about the many messianic prophecies that point to this substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we reach up to Him and we live lives of worship because He reached down for us and He paid uh, the price for our sins ...with his own blood... First Peter 3.18... ...for Christ also hath suffered for sins... ...the just for the unjust... ...the just on behalf of the unjust... ...the just instead of the unjust... ...that he might bring us to God... ...being put to death in the flesh... ...but quickened by the Spirit. You know, there's something called... ...the Shroud of Turin... ...and some people think it's a fabrication of fake. ...some people think it's the real deal... ...I don't know, I've always found it interesting... Whether it is or not, it doesn't make or break my faith. It's just something that throughout the years I've found as an interesting study. The Shroud of Turin. It is the supposed burial cloth of Christ. What's interesting about the Shroud of Tur- Turin is that there's a very... You can Google it and study, but there's a very ghostly image on this fabric, on this cloth, that looks like the face of Christ. Well, it was laid and over the person and behind the person and, and there's imprints where the nail scars would be and lacerations where the lacerations would be all over the back and the theory is because th- there wasn't the, the photographic, the, the flash technology back then to take this kind of image. So the theory is at the moment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ there was a flash ...of power, resurrection power... ...that imprinted this image on the cloth. Again, whether it is or isn't... ...it doesn't make or break my faith. I've always found it interesting. But when I was going through college... ...I, I had a copy of the Shroud of Turin ...because on the back, from the top of the neck... ...all the way down to the heels... ...were lacerations. And I, and, and I kept it with me. And every time I felt like sinning... ...every time I was tempted... ...I would pull out this piece of paper... And I would look at it and I would think, he did this for me. He went through this on behalf of me. He went through this instead of me. And since Jesus died for the sins of the world, past, present, and future, I would think, you know what? I can make his crucifixion maybe, maybe, maybe just a little less intense retrospectively by not sinning today. By not harboring bitterness today. By not lusting today. By not withholding love today. When we get a glimpse of what Jesus Christ did for us, what he he did instead of us, it should bring about a humility. It should bring about a reverence. It should bring about an awe, so that we worship him in return. In true worship is righteousness. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual worship. Acts loved well because... that Church in Acts loved well because they reached up. They loved well because they reached in. You know, they... There was nobody without because they were so aware of one another's needs. Again, they, 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 they weren't well structured. They didn't have great systems. They, they didn't have great strategies. They, they, they didn't have vision-casting banquets and all of these things. They Not that there's anything inherently wrong with these things. It's just that those things are not an end in and of themselves, and they're not even the means to an end. Love. Is the means to the end, and love is the end, and that's what brings Jesus Christ so glory, so much glory. It's love. We have to love one another well. And know we can't know this, we can't love one another from a distance. We can't love one another from the sidelines. But what matters is love. So ask yourself, are you loving well? Jesus Christ loved us well from the cross, didn't he? He loved us well all 33 years of his life here. He loved us well all eternity past. He's loved us well ever since as his spirit has been with us and comforting us, carrying us through his kindness to repentance over and over. He's been so good to us. He's been so faithful to us. He loves us well. And now he wants us to love one another well. I was at a, at a wedding yesterday. I didn't officiate. I was just there enjoying it and uh, some good friends of mine and the bride and the groom, uh, they, they said their vows to one another. It was their own vows. They made up their own vows and read them back and forth. And, and the, the groom's vows, it really brought tears to my eyes. It was really beautiful. But he was talking about, he said, he said it doesn't matter, matter where I'm at. He's from an Asian descent. He's like, it doesn't matter from overseas. It doesn't matter from here or from there. It doesn't matter where I'm at. And in his vows, he was telling his bride, he said, you're my home. Wherever you are, my heart is home. You know, that's the heart of God toward us. We read in John 1, 14, that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. This is Jesus. In verse 14, he dwelt among us. He made his dwelling among us. He made his home among us. Imagine that. Jesus in heaven, in glory. Yet he his heart not feeling at home and coming here and dwelling among us. Because as far as Jesus is concerned, his home is where we are. And when we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, his spirit comes into our heart and he makes his dwelling among us. He loves us so much that his home is among us. His home is in us. And then he told us, I'd go away to prepare a place for you. If that weren't the case, I would have told you and your home is going to be where I'm at too. I and you, you and me, I and the father, and we're going to be one. Have you ever had a group of friends that you were so comfortable with and you love so much that they were home to you? Have you? You know, I think that one of the greatest things that we can do as leaders of the local church is to create opportunities where you can experience home in the hearts of other followers of Jesus Christ. And this is this is what we call community, or this is what we call home groups, and, and this is what we read about in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And we're starting home group home groups up next week and and on your on your connect card that you have. If you're interested in a home group, just please put a check there or talk to me or talk to Pastor Robbie Bollinger. But don't do life without making your heart home with a group of believers. And then thirdly, the church in Acts, they they reached out well because they were broken and burdened for the a lost and dying world. How many of you guys have had this experience? You know, at Christmas time. Maybe there's some kids. This is a typical American kid experience, United States of America kid experience. Uh, You know, at Christmas time, a kid wakes up, and this is my experience as well. And you walk into the room, and under the tree, it is surrounded with a ton of gifts. And you might open 20 gifts. And by the time of opening the gifts, have you ever seen it? The kids are like, I mean, they're kind of even tired of opening gifts to the extent where they open the gift and they're not even excited about it. And the parents have to say, they have to say, go hug so-and-so who gave you this and say thank you. And so the kid kind of, you know, sluggishly stomps over and swings his arms and hugs them and says haphazardly, half-heartedly, thank you. And so when Christmas is done in that home... they go to one one set of grandparents' house and open a whole other 20 gifts and have to be reminded, go hug so-and-so, go hug so-and-so, so they march over and hug them and say thank you. And then when that's over, they oftentimes go to yet another grandparents' house and open another 20 gifts and march around and say thank you, thank you. I just draw that contrast because... I remember when I was in India, uh, these kids, they just surrounded you, right? I didn't have anything to give them. I wanted to give them something. Literally, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I opened up my suitcase and all I had to give them were some rolled up socks. And I gave it to these kids and they acted like it was the greatest Christmas in the history of Christmases. Like Santa Claus himself had just given them those socks or something and they were magical or something. I mean, they were so excited about those socks, and I just draw that contrast. And I think of Jesus' words when he said to the people, he said, you know, John the Baptist, he, was, he wasn't eating, he wasn't drinking. I mean, it was just, he was eating locusts or fasting or drinking water, and you said he had a demon. And you killed him. And then here I come, eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors, and you call me a drunkard and glutton. He said, what do you want? We played the flute, you didn't dance. We played a funeral song, you didn't cry. What, what do you want? And I think that we can become so comfortable here, here in the States, and we've heard the gospel so many times that we have such comfortable environments to hear the gospel and to sing songs that we can become a little spoiled. And we can treat church like a, like, like a buffet. I mean, you, you start outsourcing your spiritual maturity. Check this out. Outsource your spiritual maturity. That church has a good youth group. We'll send them there. Uh, that church has a great discipleship program, you know, in-depth discipleship on Tuesday night. You know, we'll really break down books of the Bible, the Greek and Hebrew. We'll go there on Tuesday nights. Um, that church has, has good worship. We'll, we'll go there. That church, I, you know, I like the preaching. I'll I'll go there. We outsource our spiritual walk. What that does is that impairs local churches from gaining traction. And that impairs your spiritual walk from ever having to lead. Or ever having to roll up your sleeves and dive into the trenches of ministry and love well. Because you you can just kick back and be spoiled and just outsource all of your spirituality the real heart of Christ, let's go back to the Christmas morning analogy, the real heart of Christ is to open up the gift of salvation and love well in return and say, thank you. And say, if you did this for me, if you extended this grace to me, Lord, I'm going to extend that same grace to others. If you came from this great length for me, then I'm going to go to a great length to lead others to Christ. And so we open up this great gift of salvation. And we walk out into the neighborhood. And we see a poor kid or a kid whose parents maybe aren't home or who don't care for whatever reason. And he didn't get anything that morning. Oh, they made some excuse. They will have Christmas, you know, in next month or whatever, and it never comes and he's just outside and and you have all these gifts and i mean do we just look down at that kid it's like that's sorry person he couldn't even achieve his own christmas do we look down on them i mean what a spoiled brat would that be right or do we say oh i have plenty here's my coat i have plenty here's my new football um the early church reached up well. They reached in well. They reached out well because they were driven by love, because all eyes were on Christ. And the moment we take our eyes off on Christ, we cease to be music. We cease to be worship in the heart of Christ. And we immediately begin become clanging cymbals, and everything we do is off or not. My prayer my prayer, is that you repent. My prayer is that you repent if you've stopped reaching up with love and you begin enduring and sacrificing to the point that it costs something, perhaps even shedding blood if you're so honored. And you begin enduring and sacrificing and counting the costs unto worship to Christ. My prayer is that if you've stopped reaching in to one another in the body of Christ that you repent and maybe you make eye contact with somebody and maybe you say, I haven't loved you well and I'm so sorry. Forgive me. God has given me so much grace. I don't know what I was thinking. I can give you grace. And my prayer is that if you've stopped reaching out that you would repent unto fruitfulness and you wouldn't look down your noses at people far from God or you wouldn't be scared of them because perfect love casts out fear and you would go after them. So would you stand with me, please? If you would bow your heads. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would reflect what you imagined when you dreamt of the church. Lord, a group of people living in perfect unity because we are completely surrendered to you. All eyes are on you, Lord. All eyes are on you. And we're going to watch how you loved us, how you died for us, how you conquered death for us. And Lord, give us the capacity to fight for one another, to, to love one another, to endure, to persevere. You know, if I could have your, your, your attention for one more second again. You know, it's something else that I think is an Achilles heel and just sort of our American mindset. I, I love the United States of America. I've had the privilege of going overseas, and every time I do, I long for our country. Uh, a, a, anytime I go overseas, there are, uh, the, people are so grateful for the United States, especially in third world undeveloped countries, because churches in America are so generous. With resources, they love you so much. I mean, you have to struggle with not being prideful about being from the states because everybody's so grateful for you. So I I I love our country, but I'm just saying that growing up in this culture, there's some things that have really hindered our relationship with Christ. And and you know, one of them is that this buffet mindset of approaching church. But another is that. That If we just get a little b- wounded, you know, if we get a little offended, if, we, if somebody looks at us wrong, or maybe somebody completely wrongs us, then we're out of there where we can hide and just go back to that buffet mentality again. You know, there have been times that I've taken a beating from the body of Christ. You know, I've pastored this church since 2003. We started in 2003. I've taken a beating, a beating. There are few wounds that are as painful as those that are inflicted on, uh, on you from the church. Um, whether they meant to, whether they didn't mean to, whether it was justified, whether it was unjustified, I'm not talking about any of that. But for whatever reason, where my spiritual walk was, I allowed my heart to get wounded by, I mean, some beatings from the body of Christ. And part of me wanted to run. But the Lord said, Shane, I called you, but I didn't tell you to leave. You stay. You know your marching orders. You fight the good fight. Because here's the thing. Jesus Christ is far more interested in our character than he is our comfort. We are fiercely committed to maintaining our comfort. Jesus is fiercely committed to our character, reflecting his these are two agendas that bump heads. And Jesus will not relent. And he will allow us to go through whatever we need to go through until we look more like Christ. And so I want to encourage you, don't don't get skittish. Don't run and and then just, you know, hide in the shadows and and go back to that buffet mentality of the church and just outsourcing your spirituality, never being known, never really knowing, never serving, never being served, never discovering how God has uniquely gifted you, never being passionate about anything, but just, just kind of being a sponge or a consumer rather than a committed follower of Jesus Christ who counts the cost and becomes more like Jesus every day. Please don't sell the church short. Please don't sell your spiritual walk short. And so let me just summarize this just by saying, I think that the appropriate response to this sermon, this was, you know, this is a pretty, pretty hard sermon this morning. And I think that the appropriate response to it is to say, like Isaiah, here am I, God. I surrender to you. Send me. Use me. Just, just let me reflect your heart back to you, to people within the church, and to a lost and dying world. I surrender to you, God. I'll, I'll, I'll take whatever step you want me to take. I don't care how humiliating it is. I don't care how humbling it is. I don't care how sacrificial. I don't care how costly it is. Lord, just let me follow. Let me follow you. So perhaps some of you need to repent for trying to bypass love to go straight to results. Perhaps some of you need to repent by, by not being passionate about anything in relation to the Lord. It's that cons- American consumer mentality that seeped in. Let's just get all eyes on Jesus. And let's live like him, all right? So with that, I just want to invite you to to repent up here. And the only way to repent is if the Holy Spirit begins living through us. So repent and let the Holy Spirit begin living through you and ask for him to start living through you and changing your heart. And as we've talked about the cross of Christ, let's also respond with worship and by saying thank you. So let's just spend some time and, and respond.